I think that it has to do with the culture of learning that's uh, in force. You know, if you, if you uh, as you said it yourself, I mean, if you encourage students to be obedient and to uh, follow the rules and to um, uh, inhibit their natural curiosity and desire to go out and experiment and occasionally fall on their face and make a mess, then uh, that's how they're going to behave. And so it depends on the incentives, but also the subtle cues that uh, reinforce uh, cultural norms, which are very subtle and which are very hard to uh, change. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast, member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, we have on guest John Ko. I had met up with him at the ISTE 18. John is a global innovator, advisor, best-selling author, and self-styled innovation activist who founded Edgemakers, an education organization which empowers students to think more creatively and work with problems more effectively so they can become highly skilled innovators and entrepreneurs. And you're thinking, wow, right up your alley. And it's exactly it. I was blown away when I read his bio and I was like, man, I got I to gotta meet with this guy and I uh, have to work with him. So this was a fun podcast. This was one that was lighthearted. And what I loved is he also brought his son we got to interview his son as well in this. So this is one that I think is really practical. This guy's got a ton of experience and he has a lot of insight, even working with governments and heads of state. So enjoy this one. Without further ado, John Ko. All right. So now I'm excited here at ISTE. I'm talking to John Ko. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So um, I, a, a friend of yours reached out and said, oh, do you know John? And uh, I said, no. Then I read your bio and I felt a little, a little silly that I haven't. And I start reading into more and more and I'm blown away by what you're doing and what you already have done. We'll get into that. Um, but to start us off, tell us about Edgemakers. Edgemakers is an initiative that I started a few years ago uh, out of a desire to have an a learning experience for innovation that would be relevant to young people. You know, we're in this era where young people are smart and they realize the world is not in great shape. And it, that innovation, as I understand it, which is the ability to create, to generate new ideas, to develop them with disciplines like design and storytelling and collaboration, skill development, and then to be entrepreneurial, to take that new uh, value out into the world and make it live. That's fundamentally important. That's something that everyone, uh, in a sense, will acknowledge in one way or another is important. The gap has been that um, uh, reliable ways of actually doing innovation, of imparting the how of innovation, have been lacking. And so in my kind of uh, weirdly nonlinear, uh, non-career, I've accumulated certain uh, experiences around how innovation is done that I've translated into the Edgemakers learning experience. So Edgemakers, in a nuts and bolts way, is a middle school and high school focused uh, learning experience that's injected into schools. Uh, it's also available as a higher education uh, learning experience, uh, and it covers uh, the subjects of uh, creativity, design thinking, um, um, storytelling, collaboration, and entrepreneurship integrated into a whole, activated uh, with uh, um, uh, examples from uh, the world of sustainability, environmental uh, issues as the kind of generational challenge because, you know, innovation doesn't occur in a vacuum. It needs real stuff to work on. So, I could go on. No, no, I mean, no. I, I, I enjoy hearing this. But uh, at the same time, um, and I share in your passion, um, but it seems as though a lot of times 
schools are interested possibly in some of the things that you said in theory, um, but this is tough work. How, how are you, and here, listen to me, like, give me your pain points. Um, but, 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 but tell me some of the, the things that you've been battling against that have been almost um, counter to the traditional school culture. In my, uh, in my view, schools are optimized for a world which is uh, rapidly disappearing. Uh, we're no longer in an agrarian or industrial societal model where uh, evaluating uh, students based on their ability to correctly ingest and regurgitate information and get scores that will allow them to be placed into an industrial social model uh, is relevant. And kids know that. It's not clear that the, um, the mainstream of the education institution is fully aware of that. So there's a gap in terms of the ability of the uh, education, uh, 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 the institution of education to really, in a sense, address what are 21st century requirements for, for to thrive, not only uh, uh, at the, let's say, professional or the occupational level, but also uh, personally. So at the same so so at the same time you know if you if you acknowledge that these kind of new uh, fundamentals as I like to call them are important, there's no slot for it in the existing curriculum. So a lot of our challenge is not so much to demonstrate that there's value in these learning experiences, but to actually do the implementation of um, uh, causing them to be injected into the traditional, whether it's the daily schedule, the overall curriculum, and. You know, for good reasons as well as maybe not, some not so good reasons, education is conservative and it, it has an inertia. It's not easy to make change. Uh, and so when you say, what are the pain points? We feel that we have something very valuable. The question is how to build the bridge uh, to make it uh, widespread and to make it sustainable. So when, I'm, when I've been in the last couple of years trying to get students to um, do and not just from on high. So like, you know, the 20% the, the time movement, and we were talking earlier about Daniel Pink and all these other things. Um, one of the, 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 the classic things that I hear again and again from a lot of teachers is when you give students a choice, a lot of times their choice is to still set and wait for instruction. Um, you know, the freedom to create has been a, a major obstacle. And I, and, I, and I, you know, I get it. I'm like, you know, we've told them for years to sit down and wait for instructions. Um, but at the same time, what's really keeping me up at night is that, uh, and I've talked a lot about this on, on the show, that according to a lot of sources, you know, 20, by 2020, supposedly, half the nation's jobs are freelance, gig economy. So how do you create that mindset of, I'm going to go out there and get it? How do we create that mindset of no longer sitting around and waiting for approval? Um, what have you found in, in, in your work? Well, I think that it has to do with the culture of learning that's uh, in force. You know, if you, if you uh, as you said it yourself, I mean, if you encourage students to be obedient and to uh, follow the rules and to um, uh, inhibit their natural curiosity and desire to go out and experiment and occasionally fall on their face and make a mess, then uh, that's how they're going to behave. And so it depends on the incentives, but also the subtle cues that uh, reinforce uh, cultural norms, which are very subtle and which are very hard to uh, change. I tend to believe that all young people have this natural predilection to be open-minded and curious. And so, I mean, maybe it's tamped down in their early uh, childhood development or their family experience, but it's certainly a feature of um, traditional education, shall we say. So um, 
how, how do you change that? Well, uh, you know, I think it has to do with the quality of teaching, very much so. And, you know, it has to do, in a sense, with preying teachers as much as it has to do with preying students. You know, I look at teachers as really being the, the, the heroes, the, the, the vanguard of whatever it is that we're going to have to undergo in terms of the, not just the changing of education, but the transformation, transformation right. of education. Well, um, let me push back a little bit in the sense that um, sometimes there's this pass the buck theory. You know, I'll, I'll go and I'll talk to some schools and they're like, yeah, but my principal doesn't support. Actually, I, I had this, I, was a, I did a conference and we had everybody under one roof. We had teachers, we had superintendents, we had principals, you name it. And so there was some uncomfortable shifting around and so a couple of brave people said, well, we'd like to try this, but we can't unless our principals give the blessing. And they shift around their chair like, well, you know, okay, but we'd like to try some of these things, but, you know, it's the lawmakers. You know, if we don't hit our AYP or if we don't, you know, if we don't do well in the state test, then we lose funding. And so th then there's that go down the stream of, of blame where, you know, yeah, but yeah, but it ends up in being the lawmakers like, well, if they'd relax on some of the standards or they would if they would just open up their mind, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I guess that's kind of my next question. Like, when do we all agree that the, the testing for the sake of testing is like it's, it's 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 beyond redundant at this point. We've talked about it, talked about, it, talked about, it, talked about. It. Yet every state, their funding model really revolves around the test. What is it, in your opinion, going to take for a dial not not a dialogue, a, a movement past the dialogue, uh, to start saying, okay, there has to be dedicated time towards innovation and entrepreneurship. So I, I see this a lot in not just in education, but in the business world and in the government uh, world as well. Uh, you know, there's a fine line between realistically acknowledging that there are a lot of forces arrayed against uh, the pursuit of innovation and, uh, as you put it, passing the buck or saying, uh, it's, I, I can't do it, it's not in my remit. Um, I think that part of the problem is that innovation is not a simple uh, agenda item. It's really complex and, you know, it's not just the light bulb over uh, somebody's head or a cool idea or a transitory campaign because the, you know, the head of the system says uh, we're going to go have wacky ideas and let our hair down and so forth and so on. It's not about momentary bursts. It's about transformation. So the question then becomes how do you get that, um, uh, uh, how do you get that to come alive uh, in a system that is optimized uh, for being uh, conservative? And it's, it's, it's a complex question. So therefore, you have to approach it uh, as a wicked problem as opposed to a tame problem. You know, tame problems, you can analyze their causality and you can figure out uh, and do some experimentation and come to an answer and you're finished. Whereas uh, the notion of how to innovate in the education system is complex with many different stakeholders, many different perspectives and value systems uh, coexisting and conflicting at the same time. So it's not clear to me that anyone has really uh, looked systemically at how the change process needs to happen in education in 2018 in a way that is couched in a narrative that's compelling enough that people can sign on to it. Right. I mean, you see symptoms of that down on the exhibition floor of, of ISTE. I mean, there's a, th a thousand and one, I mean, there's several thousand, you know, uh, answers to the question of how to be innovative in education. Yeah. And for the most part, they're piecemeal. They don't connect with a narrative that has to do with what are the underlying values of education and what is the purpose of education in 2018 and how is my shiny object going to actually 
assist in that transformational effort. It's really about, I see an incremental opportunity to sell something that, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm at the conference with my 13-year-old son and I asked him what he thought and he said, well, I see a lot of gimmicks that are quite uh, shiny, but they don't necessarily connect, in my opinion, with what learning is about. I'm gonna interview Desi here in a bit. <laughs> Just put him on the spot. But no, okay. So let's let's, let's do this in the uh, in the classic uh, uh, math lesson. Two trains leave the station, right? So we have the train of education, and it's chugging along. The speed of which artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation is moving. Can education now? Sp- you see where this is going. Yes. Like, how soon are we going to have mass problems? Or, or at least, you know, a lot of the things that... Because what, what scares me is still some of the careers that we're pushing our students to, if you... You don't have to be Ray Kurzweil. Like, you, you can Google some of these things and, and then realize, like, some of these things are just going away. When do we have the conversation of saying, hey, maybe we should either ease back off of it or just not offer as much? Like, I'd, like, I'd like to be there, like, uh, when, when school said, let's stop teaching Latin. Because at, at some point, somebody's like, you know, this isn't really preparing our kids. So when are we going to have some sort of a time or a, a, a place to pivot because the, the speed in which AI is moving um, is frightening. How are we, how, you can answer this better, how are schools starting to prepare for that? Or even are they having these conversations? Like what, what areas are gonna be completely obsolete? Well, I think uh, there is a conversation around the link between education and employment that is pretty rudimentary right now and needs to be a lot smarter. I think the, uh, at the heart of the dilemma is that we're not uh, any longer, I think, uh, in the business of necessarily only preparing people for certain content-based occupational slots. We have to give uh, young people the ability to manage their own personal career and personal development arcs regardless of what the job uh, is that they might land on first and regardless of what their progression is going to be because a large percentage of the jobs that will be relevant for them haven't been invented yet. Things are going to change dramatically and what is needed is uh, the ability to have the agility and resilience and understanding of the environment and the personal skills to be proactive and to generate new sources of value that make them valuable to employers that right now I'm not seeing a great deal of uh, in the in the uh, in the education uh, offerings of today. I mean, you know, we want to make our young people ready for a world that is dominated by uncertainty, by uh, contradictions, <laughs> by uh, the need to be proactive and entrepreneurial, and the need to create sources of value that are defined by uh, oneself in a way. I mean, that are validated by one's own. Uh, experiences. And, you know, another thing that I'll say, because, you know, the topic of AI raises the the point that, in a way, we're at this um, juncture where education as an institution and learning are beginning to diverge at a a ferocious uh, and accelerating rate. Um, I was at a conference uh, at Harvard a month or so ago on uh, the future of continuing education, and I, I raised the example of Fortnite as a learning environment that has a certain validity to it. I mean, parents might disagree because, you know, it's eating up the brains of their kids, but, you know, as a volume of activity metric, last month, supposedly, they generated $300 million of revenues by selling virtual widgets and this, that, and the other things. And what are they, 
what's that about? It's about uh, collaborative learning. It's about uh, uh, all kinds of things that actually we would want. But it has nothing to do with school. Yeah. And they have a potentially a franchise to build on top of that all kinds of other social learning uh, opportunities that um, you know are based on uh, a, a platform of engagement as opposed to, you know, oh my God, I gotta go in and eat another pound of spinach. No, I, you had me at Fortnite. Um, we, our, our school, actually, I have a team of three students that they now have their own, they have their own consultancy business uh, because now um, just this, this is, and, and this is where Desi's gonna come in, I can tell, uh, but uh, this is so a big, you know, a big thing because my three students, um, aren't good enough to be pro. I mean, they, they, they talk to a lot of people at Cloud9 and, and Echo Fox and all these great people, but um, like, they, they're good enough to be analysts. They're good enough to understand the marketing. Matter of fact, the team of the students I have, um, they saw this as an opportunity. So two years ago, uh, they came to me and they said, we need to be an esports team, not a club. And so I happened to find some money. And so we became the first esports team. And then all of a sudden, all these things started, you know, Rick Fox reached out to us, Cloud9, some of these things started to happen because my students saw it as an opportunity. And, and to, to make their proof, because at first I laughed, I'm like, oh, why? And the, the first of all, they showed me the data, just the money data from this is two years ago. This is before Fortnite. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh. And they gave me like the stats, like, you know, two years ago, more people watched the League of Legends World Series than the World Series Stanley Cup and the NBA Finals combined. It's huge. Um, but then they also said, um, but a lot of businesses are gonna be interested in this too. And I think that we could be a conduit for businesses that don't understand gamers because who are they trying to reach? People my age. I'm like, wow. And then I was like, okay, but tell me how I can ex like excuse this through the school system. And they go, watch. Uh, Counter-Strike. He says, take out, you know, the, the, unfortunately, it's a little bit violent. He says, but watch how we communicate. Watch how we tell people to go this way and that way. Watch how we tell, there is so much strategy. He says, if you just watch it from the top down, it's beautiful. And um, I, I see all these things and, and God forbid it's fun. But here was just a perfect microcosm of students that had a passion, that wanted to increase the skill set, that wanted to market their skill set and then wanted to boldly say, oh, by the way, we're experts. And then when some people are like, oh, you're only 18. Yeah, who do you think your target market is? And uh, I, I, I absolutely love that. I am going to switch now, though, just briefly to uh, Desi. So here you are at a conference and uh, you're walking around going, well, some of these are shiny things. In your experience, as it, you're the ripe old age of 13. 13. Perfect. So the, you, you had made, your dad had made the reference that sometimes shiny tech for the sake of tech isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah. Give me an example. I mean, we were walking around and then we saw like hoverboards and stuff like that. And I was thinking about these like connect to technology, but not really to education. And I thought that was pretty funny. But, although here's a challenge, how, how could you make hoverboards integrated into a class? I mean, I couldn't really find a connection. I mean, they're just basically a popular thing that people were using as transportation, and I didn't really see why I was here, but yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't, unless obviously you go the entrepreneurial route, but yeah, they weren't here to do the entrepreneurial thing. There was, it's cool, yeah, cool thing. And, and I think that there's been a lot of talk about that, that sometimes teachers, not all, they, they're like, we have the new shiny 
you know, I, I <laughs> one time I got myself in a bit of trouble. I, I, I went out and visited the school district and they were so proud. Like you should see our innovation lab. I'm like, Oh, awesome. What, what's going down there? They go, we have a 3d printer. I'm like, okay, what are you guys doing with it? Oh, the students aren't allowed to touch it, but our computer science teacher has made a Yoda head. And I'm like, let me, let me get this straight. You spent $3,000 on something that you could have bought at the dollar store. And they're like, but we have one. We're very innovative because we have one. And to your point, sometimes just having shiny objects isn't necessarily doing it for you. Yeah. So in, in your experience as, as a 13-year-old, what really drives you? Like, when do you want to learn things? Because I, when I started talking about esports, you, you all of a sudden like perked up and like, what, what, what? Uh, Other than esports, what really drives you? I mean, um, in class, like, we learn, let's see... I mean, I just like learning topics and, for example, like math class, like they're really fun and then they just kind of add to my library of things I know and then they can help me in the future. And in other classes, just topics that I'm interested in, like science, we're learning about like the human body and cells and stuff like that and I thought that was super interesting. And then we also got to do a project about it, which I made like a rap about, which is pretty funny because we got to basically just like be creative with it and connect it back to the topic of cells. Just, like, produce a digital track. I mean, we just like performed it in front of the class, yeah. but cool. that was pretty fun. And then we got to learn a lot in the process, so it was kind of cool how we got to connect like learning topics that we're interested in with doing stuff that we like doing on the side, yeah. like like rapping and stuff like that. Right. So, John, back to you. You you'd mentioned obviously, you know, and and. Desi made a really good point. It doesn't necessarily have to be on a shiny device, but getting back to those roots of creativity, design, creating instead of consuming, um, for, for people listening, they're like, okay, they have like a really, let's just say they're, they're at a school that's less enthusiastic about this. What are some little things that you can start sneaking past the goalie, so to speak? What are some creativity tools you've seen at, uh, let's just go like the middle school level, high school level for them to start thinking uh, more creatively and doing some of these things? Well, there, there's a huge variety of tools that are available. I, I tend to like really simple analog tools. Uh, uh, Post-it notes can be very valuable for creating a, kind of a democracy of uh, opinion and for creating inclusion. Um, uh, and. There are books actually about how to use post-it notes for brainstorming and ideation and things of this kind. Um, I think that getting uh, the collaborative process out of the traditional um, uh, kind of uh, traditional literacies and pushing them into visual literacies and uh, having the um, uh, ability to move the activities around in a physical space in a different way so that you're not in this industrial, you know, sitting in rows facing the front, but actually, and, and en engaging the students in the design process so that, you know, in a, in a way, the, 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 the world and its concerns can be reflected in the classroom and, and its concerns because there's a way of making them kind of isomorphic. I think there are a lot of different ways of, of injecting creativity into the classroom without having to depend on uh, buying 
uh, a magical totemic item uh, that's going to kind of do it all for you. And ultimately, it comes back to teachers. I mean, the thing that I'm a little bit concerned about in terms of all of the prolifer proliferation of tools and technologies is that it may have an, a tendency to disempower teachers a little bit and make them feel like, oh, if I can only buy an iPad, if I can only have a video of a hoverboard doing some teaching example or whatever, that I'm going to, uh, teaching, the quality of teaching will be better. And I, I think that that is not, that's a bit, a bit of a fallacy. Um, you know, Mao Zedong, who was in fact a great educator in the sense of taking his ideas and inculcating them to hundreds of millions of people, not the most popular person in the world, but he had this great saying, which is that um, you have to beware of the error of weaponry. He said, in fighting a war or making a revolution, the belief in weapons over the human spirit and people is a sure pathway to uh, disaster and to losing. And so uh, it's the whole notion of what are the core values, how do you inflame the, the human spirit of the teacher and of the learner to engage, which is the foundation upon which the tools and technology can be placed, rather than focusing on the technology first, because you believe that you know an F-16 is going to be better than a MiG-21, uh, but you're not thinking about the pilot in the plane. You mentioned the word concerns. You've also worked at a national level talking to, to heads of state and things like that. Um, I, 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 too, have seen like a, a sense of urgency um, with the focus on innovation and creativity. Um, you've had a very much a 35,000-foot view looking down. Um, so from people outside of education that you've worked with, and again, sometimes at the government level, what is, what is their motivation or what is their fear in making sure this innovation movement uh, sticks? Well, um, innovation, I think, with some legitimacy is viewed as being the key to national competitiveness. And national competitiveness at an economic uh, level, in turn, relates very much to economic and social well-being. Um, a country that does not innovate is basically going to be a follower. And to be a follower uh, and to be downstream from the innovators is basically going to be to lose one's opportunity to set the rules of engagement for oneself at that sort of geopolitical level. So innovation is, is important. You know, if you look at China, China's investing uh, upwards of a half a trillion dollars currently in their national innovation agenda. And innovation is something that the government talks about. It's something that's government policy. It's reflected in education. It's reflected in industrial policy. Um, there are uh, probably these days as many as 50 countries around the world that have some kind of national innovation strategy uh, where if you go to the government phone book and you say who's in charge of innovation, you'll be able to find you know, the phone number, which is a little bit different from our country right now, which is uh, alarming in a sense. And what I like to say to leaders, whether they're political leaders or leaders of companies, is that if you want innovation, you have to have people who know how to do it. If you want people who know how to do it, you have to help them learn how to do it. And so therefore, education, in the sense of inculcating these new fundamentals that we've been talking about, has to be a fundamental pillar of national policy with regard to competitiveness and vitality uh, of a country. Putting it that way, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's vitally important. I, I had um, spent some time in, in Colombia and one of their fears was is that some of the traditional jobs uh, that they had in Colombia were absolutely, absolutely 100% being automated, and they relied on those jobs. And then so this fear of now what? 
And so uh, it, it was refreshing to see. I mean, Medellin is actually a, just a really rapidly changing city because they now have like quite honestly made it almost a national or a, a citywide policy of like, we have to innovate ourselves out of this. There's no way out. <laughs> I've been to Medellin as well uh, as a guest of the government, and it's astonishing actually that the place that was the center of the yeah. drug cartel is now a place that I think most people would love to not only visit, but uh, you know, kind of hang out in. Uh, the yes. quality of life, the beauty of the city, the cultured nature of uh, the people, and the fact that they have innovation capacity at many levels of government, education, and the private sector that are institutionalized now, that are funded, that have strategies around them, is, is almost jaw-dropping, not only when you consider where they were 15 years ago, but also in comparison with other countries. I, I like what I'm sure you're probably familiar with, like, like Comfama and all of these, like, government-led, and, and, and <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, but a lot of times government-led and innovation aren't uh, compatible as much. But yeah, they, they were all of a sudden just implementing these ideas and, you know, having little mini libraries at the subway stops and then, you know, having health initiatives and, and having single moms be able to do. Actually, one of the coolest ideas I've ever seen, um, there was like a, uh, it was basically a Chick-fil-A. It was a, it was a fast food chicken place. And uh, we were driving past, and my Espanol is just good enough to, like, I think that I just read what I read. And I'm like, I asked my my, uh, my guide, and I'm like, wait, did that sign just say that we're 20% more, exclamation point? And he said, yeah. I go, okay, this is fast food. They're bragging that they're more expensive. He goes, oh, well, it's a really good thing. I'm like, what's that? He says, well, this particular place, their employees are predominantly either single moms or they're the primary wage earner. And by eating there, you are socially signaling that I'm paying 20% more for my chicken sandwich because I believe in these women. Like, just, why aren't we, like, I was like, I'm stealing, like, I wanted to go home and start a fast food restaurant because I was like, what a great idea. And, and I, like you, I, I was amazed by, because I'm not going to lie, and when I said, when I told my wife, like, hey, I'm headed to Medellin, she's like, wait, isn't that, yes, you're heading for a good weekend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or she's like, and I'm like, Pablo's no longer. Right. Um, and they assured me of that. And, and, and it is. It's, it's been uplifting and amazing to see how a city that was under bad control has innovated their way out. And innovation is part of that narrative. Just like, you know, the success of Finland and Singapore, two countries that I've advised yes. pretty extensively, yes. has had to do with their ability to engage, not the fluff of innovation, but substance and yes. the how. Uh, uh, you know, Finland, which also has a very well-regarded public education sector, you know, back when the Soviet Union demised and they lost a huge percentage of their uh, foreign, foreign uh, trade overnight and went into a deep recession, the prime minister at the time, Esko Aho, said, we are going to focus on three things in uh, Finland. We're going to focus on uh, science and, and uh, 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 we're going to focus on entrepreneurship, and we're going to focus on innovation. And that was how the country turned itself That's around. I'm going to end it there. That's, that, is, that is everything that, well, I, I, should, I should circle back. So, one, thank you. And Desi, thank you as well. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I, I love hearing about what, what Edgemakers is doing uh, because this is a, I, I, it's a, um, I'm not trying to hyperbole here, but it's it's really honestly 
kind of life and death scenario. I, I, I'm that serious about it. I think the, the change that we're, I think the change that people don't know we're going to see is, is, is frightening. Um, and it's, and it's guys like you that are helping along the way. So last pitch, tell everybody where they can find edge makers, where they can find you, all that good stuff. So edge makers can be found at our website, edgemakers.com. Uh, we're happy to engage with you and explain more uh, uh, on a personal level as to what we do. We're very excited about it. More information about me, it's johnkao.com, J-O-H-N-K-A-O.com. Or you can look me up on LinkedIn and Twitter, which I'm pretty engaged with these days. And I look forward to uh, being of service to you. John, it has been my pleasure. Desi as well. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you.